0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the second episode of our podcast series, Inside Tech Done Deal, where we look at the who, the what, and the why of technology deals across the Asia Pac region. My name is Malika Chandrasekaran, and I'm a partner in our corporate team in Sydney, specialising in mergers and acquisitions and other strategic transactions with a focus on the technology sector. Today, we'll be taking a whistle-stop tour around the region to talk about some of the key recent trends in tech transactions. Southeast Asia is said to be one of the fastest growing and one of the most active regions for tech transactions in the world. So joining me for the episode today is Victor Chu, who covers the Southeast Asia region from our Singapore office.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Thanks, Victor. Now, Indonesia accounts nearly half of the Southeast Asian economy and it's arguably its most important market. So also on today's episode, we have Vic Tang, our market-leading expert who has been on the ground in Jakarta for over 10 years.
2: Thanks, Malika, and good to be talking to you today on this topic.
0: Great. Now, Vic, Victor, I think we can all agree that there's been strong activity in the tech sector over the past year. For example, in Australia, we saw a range of significant transactions from mega deals such as Square's acquisition of Afterpay and strategic transactions such as Uber's acquisition of Car that we acted on. Um, Car Nextdoor was an Australian um, peer-to-peer car sharing platform and it added to Uber's suite of products in Australia. So lots of exciting and quite different deals in the tech sector in Australia. Now, I know your teams have been incredibly busy in recent months as well, what's been keeping you occupied?
1: Yeah, there's certainly been quite a bit going on. I mean, um, venture and growth fundraising activity in the second half of last year and the first quarter of this year was just going at an absolute breakneck speed. Um, but if I had to name just one area, um, I would say it is digital infrastructure, um, which is you know really sort of intertwined with and adjacent to tech. Um, This segment has been really active, and we've just come off the back of a series of um, competitive auction processes in the region. Um, The the assets range from data centers to fiber networks, mobile towers to the sub-t cables. And just in the past half year or so, we've been involved in transactions in Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines. Um, I know Vic and the team in Jakarta have seen a fair amount of activity there as well. do you
2: think? Uh, yes, I think that's certainly right, Victor. Um, I think across the board, uh, although as you all know, the current climate is a little bit more careful um, in terms of investments being made in, in, in uh, various countries in Asia, we continue to see uh, fundraising activity. For example, we acted for Dana, the payment company uh, in its uh, further investment um, by by existing stakeholders, including and group whom we act for. Uh, for many years now, uh, and Cinemas took uh, a new stake in Dana as a new controlling shareholder in that company, and that has been receive, receiving uh, quite a lot of publicity recently. Quite apart from that, the other trend that we're seeing is that some of the uh, unicorns which are now listed, uh, including Bukalapak, they are starting to do bolt on acquisitions in their own right, both in Indonesia and outside Indonesia. Uh, But I do sort of uh, agree with your observation that digital infrastructure has been uh, particularly active in Indonesia, particularly, uh, for example, we acted for Kalao and Southern Capital when they exited um, STP, a listed mobile tower company here, and the sale to Lindo was uh, over a billion dollars, and that was uh, a very uh, well received deal as well in the market. The the other trend that we're seeing is that uh, a lot of the uh, Telecommunications company, the telcos, the major telcos here have, over the last decade, also you know divested the tower assets away from their balance sheets to specialized tower companies. Over the last few years, you know the, those wave of transactions that we see in the four or five years, and HPT has been very active in those. Um, those are coming to an end, uh, and the attention focus now is is on the the tower companies themselves, and we are seeing increasing m a activities, including from private uh, equity investors in, in that space. Uh, data centers as well, we're seeing both uh, Greenfield Joint Ventures, people setting up uh, joint venture companies to acquire land and build data centers on them, driven in part by the high demand for uh, higher quality data centers, which is uh, currently absent in Indonesia. That's
0: Malika, really uh, interesting. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Vic. You know, Vic and Victor, that's really interesting. Some of those trends are certainly playing out here in Australia as well. I mean, on digital infrastructure, obviously, there's been a series of tower transactions um, in the market here as well. Um, And data centres continue to be sort of an important asset class as well. So what do you think has been driving all of the activity in this asset class? And what does it mean for the tech sector?
1: Well, we see the demand for digital infrastructure as being directly correlated with the continuing boom in the digital economy in Southeast Asia. Um, we are continuing to see exponential increases in data consumption. Um, small consumers come online um, with higher bandwidth content, such as video streaming becoming increasingly the norm. Um, markets previously served by 4G are now moving to 5G, while emerging markets running 3G are going to 4G. Tech companies are also starting to invest to prepare for the next wave of consumer tech, you know, such as augmented reality and mixed reality, which requires uh, quite different um, sort of uh, load in terms of uh, bandwidth and capacity. On the enterprise side, uh, the use of cloud hosting and outsourced cloud applications is also increasingly taking hold here. Uh, This was the case prior to COVID, but COVID-induced changes in working patterns have only served to accelerate this trend.
0: That's really interesting, Victor, Um, thanks for that. Now look, staying with the expanding role of digital services in day-to-day services, I understand there've been reports of a string of investments and acquisitions by tech companies of banks in Indonesia. What's the story there, Vic, and what's been driving this trend?
2: Uh, Thanks, Mika. Yeah, I think the trend of tech companies sort of going into financial services has been a long time in the making. It's not a new story. Uh, To be honest, the latest sort of manifestation of this in Indonesia is the rise of uh, digital lending, and in particular the acquisition of small uh, conventional banks to be eventually converted into digital banks. So for example, we acted for Grab and Singtel in their consortium formation, uh, which is a precursor to the acquisition of Bank Pharma, which is a deal that was uh, completed recently. Uh, we also uh, fairly recently acted for Boyu Capital, uh, where they participated in a again a consortium arrangement led by Relap when they took control of Bang Jasa Jakarta, which is another small conventional bank. With the aim of converting that bank into a digital bank going forward so the key point in indonesia is that unlike in certain other asian countries like you know hong kong singapore malaysia where the regulators are issuing new so-called digital banking license the approach that is taken that has been taken by the indonesian regulators is to Uh, instead encourage, you know, these uh, tech companies to acquire small conventional banks and to convert them into digital, rather than creating more and more banks, which is difficult from a regulatory standpoint to to properly regulate, uh, given a country of of the size of Indonesia. So the theme is very consistent with OJK's long-term policy of consolidating the number of uh, banks that are in Indonesia. Uh, to make it more manageable from a regulatory standpoint. And on top of that, they incentivize this by make, ensuring that the amount of capital that the new investor has to put aside if you're doing a conversion is a lot less than uh, if you are applying to set up a new bank from scratch. So that that uh, hopefully will us uh, in a nutshell what is driving the, the bank acquisitions that we've been seeing recently by tech companies in Indonesia.
1: Yeah, yeah, but outside Indonesia, digital banks are also very much in play. Uh, in just the past month, um, Singapore has had the launch of its first fully digital bank, uh, GXS, which is, uh, as big mentioned, is a consortium formed by Grab, a tech company, and Singtel, which is a telco. Uh, GXS is one of four digital bank licenses in Singapore, so we should expect to see more launches in the near future. Um, Malaysia has also awarded five digital bank licenses, uh, including a number of uh, Sharia bank licenses. And Thailand's society will be looking into um, implementing the regime for digital banks.
0: Well, wow, that's some um, really fascinating and interesting trends in that space. We're certainly seeing some of that play out here as well. Um, and, you know, there's so much to this that I think we're going to explore fintech transactions in more detail in a later episode. So that's been a, a good teaser. And, you know, people do stay tuned um, as we talk about this further in a, in another episode. Now, it sounds, certainly sounds like there's a lot of activity and very rapid development through the region have you found that regulators and regulations have kept up with the pace of change?
2: Um, maybe I'll take that one first, Mirika. I think it goes without saying that, you know, technology tends to develop faster than um, regulators or <laughs> regulatory framework, rather, which is required to support the development of uh, the technology. Uh, having said that, compared to just a few years ago, uh, I think it's fair to say that Indonesia now has a reasonably developed sort of Um, regulatory framework for technology companies ranging from e-commerce to fintech. um, And, you know, it includes regulations pertaining to formation of uh, those uh, e-commerce platforms, digital lending, the payment sector, and the list goes on. The the one area which is developing particularly quickly at the moment is the regulatory framework for cryptocurrency. Um, There has been uh, a a lot of uh, fast-moving... Regulations being talked about and to be issued soon, so there's a lot of focus on that at the moment. And more recently, um, the Indonesian Parliament has at last finally approved the long-awaited uh, data protection, personal data protection bill, which has been at least six, seven years, if not more, in the making. Uh, and it's now, as we speak, awaiting the signature of the Indonesian President. Uh, once that signature is secured, then the the bill will be it will become law in Indonesia, and that's expected uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so in broad terms, I would say having spent almost over a decade in this market, the regulatory framework in Indonesia is generally supportive of foreign investment, uh, including in the tech and the fintech sector in Indonesia, and I, I personally remain quite optimistic that that will remain the general direction of travel in the foreseeable future.
1: Um, I can only echo Vic's observations on the pace of change, and and they they also apply to different degrees the rest of the region. Um, Southeast Asia is anything but homogeneous, but regulatory complexity is a common trait running throughout, um, even before accounting for the rapid changes in the recent past. Um, Many of our tech clients are at the forefront of regulatory activity and will often require cutting edge advice to navigate and stay on the right side of regulatory boundaries.
0: Yes, I think I can certainly say that regulatory complexity is also a theme here in Australia. And, you know, if I look at it in the deals context and what we see in doing transactions, um, we're often helping our clients navigate um, some of these complexities, you know, when doing deals, when diligencing targets, when understanding the frameworks going forward. So I think that's probably a lot in that as well. Um, now, I want to change that. Slightly, but on this sort of same theme, just to talk about the impact of geopolitical factors, you know, and foreign investment on deals in the tech sector. In Australia, um, there's been a strong focus on critical infrastructure, on on tech and national security, and our regulator um, is understandably very focused on this. And what we're finding on transactions is an increasing scrutiny of of deals and the imposition of conditions. Um, on foreign transactions, you know, dealing with protection and flow of data, dealing with cyber security um, and really, I guess, protecting kind of the national security in that context. So we're finding um, at a general level foreign investment, it's extremely welcome in Australia still, but there is that slight added layer of ensuring, you know, getting foreign investment approval early, um, that that's very much part of the process and taken into account in deal timetables and and frameworks. How are you finding um, that in in Southeast Asia?
1: Yeah, in in general, Southeast Asian countries do not want to take sides, um, but they are certainly not immune to the pressures to do so. Um, For some time now, the, the region has been a bit of a proxy battleground between the US and the Chinese tech giants. And this has only intensified in the past year, uh, with most, if not all, of the tech giants increasingly building out their presence in the region. Um, it's not all bad news. The region has benefited from increased inflows of investments um, from investors who are finding it increasingly difficult to invest in other emerging markets. Um, I saw a statistic recently to the effect that almost thirty-five percent of all investment funds raised globally are uh, targeting the APEC market, with a significant amount of these are uh, specifically focused on Southeast Asia. How
2: do you this play out in Indonesia, babe? Um, I think both of what you you have said sort of plays out here in 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 various ways. So so the, the first point I would make is that um, looking after Indonesia's interests um in the context of foreign investment is not a new thing here, and the government has been has always been. Uh, nationalistic one, as as it as it should be, to look after the interests of Indonesians, and we have been, you know, over the decades have a foreign investment system whereby ownership and control is 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 monitored carefully by the government. So, for example, in the payment sector, the latest regulation, um, you know, stipulates that the control of a digital uh, payment services company would need a majority Indonesian. Uh, but having said that, the regulation also goes on to say that it is uh, permissible for foreigners to take uh, non-voting preferred shares, for example. So the this is a good illustration of how the government tries to balance the, 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 the national interest in terms of making sure that uh, payment infrastructure remains in the hands of uh, Indonesian uh, companies and, and individuals, whereas, uh, on the other hand, balancing the need and recognizing the fact that foreign investment is really important to help a country uh, the size of Indonesia to develop, uh, in particular, including in relation to the, the, the payment infrastructure here. So the reality is that Indonesia is a developing country and it needs a very large amount of foreign investment to develop uh, properly, including the, the, the fast-growing digital economy. And so I think for the foreseeable future in Indonesia, it is likely that the government will continue to take a balanced approach in welcoming foreign investment from all quarters. Um, In fact, you know, um, geopolitical issues elsewhere in the region and globally has, in some instances, made Indonesia uh, to an extent a more attractive alternative for investment, given its... um, a uh, uh, reasonably strong economic performance uh, to date and uh, current uh, perceived political stability that we've enjoyed over the last decade or so um, and I my, my own feeling is that this will remain the foreign investment climate here including in the tech sector will remain broadly stable for for the foreseeable future
0: that's really fascinating um, Victor and um, those trends, in, and I think I, I could talk about this for, um, for hours, um, but I'm sure no one wants to listen to that at this stage, uh, but we will be doing another podcast episode, just going a bit uh, of a more of a deep dive into some of these regulatory regimes and how that's playing out um, around the APAC region. Now, we're quickly running out of time, but just as a last stop, I want to talk about the much discussed topic of valuations in the tech sector. We're certainly going through a period of heightened market volatility, and you know the rising rate environment. The consensus view seems to be that tech and growth stocks, in particular, are in for a bit of a bumpy ride. Now, in Australia, we think this equity value softness may actually drive bitter activity, searching for you know tech-enabled growth. Um, Timing certainly right for global tech companies to take out wish list targets for private equity to um, fulfil a desired position for tech enabled growth and also for corporates or non-tech strategics, you know, seeking to um, bring on bolt on capabilities or enhance tech angles. Have you seen this play out in your regions?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with uh, those opposite observations, Malika. Uh, this could be a whole episode on its own. Um, but, but very quickly, we, we are seeing ripple effects from the pullback in the public market valuations uh, flow through to private market deals, um, more so on the later stage growth side of things, but um you know, increasingly uh, on on adventure in as well. Um revaluations can kind have of a host of ramifications, um, you know, ranging from renegotiations and issue prices to wholesale restructuring of deals, uh, but we have seen deals starting out as a vanilla funding round for minority position morphed into control or even full acquisitions. Um, unsurprisingly, termships are starting to look more investor friendly and there's closer scrutiny of what used to be relatively standard provisions such as uh, down round protections and liquidity preferences. Um, some of our well-funded tech clients have said that they are waiting the wings for when valuations stabilise, um, likely in Q4 this year before making bold acquisitions. I think you, you have been seeing an interesting trend of um, Indonesian tech unicorns starting to prefer domestic listings over US listings, haven't you?
2: That's right. I think in particular as you know, market conditions get tougher uh, around the world, uh, Indonesia of course is not immune to it and one uh, example of what you've mentioned earlier, Victor, is we have acted for Ngroup for a number of years now, in particular in relation to its investment in Bukalapak, one of the major e-commerce platforms here. And in 2021, Bukalapak became the first uh, technology company to list domestically on IDX. And this was followed subsequently by GoTo, and they also listed on IDX, at least as a first step. And this is something, as you can imagine, which is strongly encouraged by the government and the regulators here, uh, as this is sort of in line with their longer-term policy to help develop the Indonesian uh, capital markets here. Um, I think the other interesting observation, uh, born from conversations with the various um, VCs and and, and tech companies here, for, for many years, it's quite a common practice when you structure tech investments, in indonesia to have an offshore whole coal possibly in singapore hong kong and the like, and partly the reason that drove that um, structure is the aim of eventually achieving an offshore ipo um, outside indonesia in more recent times as the market becomes more challenging outside indonesia some of the younger um fast developing tech companies here are starting to challenge this receive wisdom and the standard advice has been looked at more carefully whether it is wise to have an offshore local, uh, Because in general, it may create a, a level of complexity if the ultimate aim is to have, uh, in the first instance, a domestic l- listing before the company venture further afield. So, the particularly for businesses with a very large retail uh, consumer base, the what we're seeing is that the positive publicity of a domestic offering and and strong government support uh, for 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 doing so is uh, can be quite a compelling reason for some, if not all, of the uh, tech companies to pursue uh, a domestic offering at least as a first step.
0: That's really fascinating. Um, and you know, in terms of that venture and growth capital space, we'll also be exploring that in a bit more detail. There's a lot happening in that venture space um, around the region um, as both of you have alluded to. So we'll be considering that a bit further um, on a future episode. So watch this space. Now, I think that's about all the time we have. Before we finish up, um, I want to ask you what I've been asking all guests on this podcast. What's one thing in tech that you're currently excited about?
2: <laughs> Thanks, Melika. That's an interesting question. Um, maybe not one particular thing, um, but but the broader point is that in a developing country like Indonesia during the COVID years, the last couple of years when most of us are, uh, uh, are confined to our homes, uh, it has sort of brought to mind the importance of technology, particularly in developing countries. You know the way that uh, uh, companies like Grab and GoTo has transformed mobility and uh, and in fact, uh, shopping in Indonesia, uh, particularly during the COVID times, is is quite transformational. And the other key long-term trend and the impact of technology on the developing country that I can see uh, over the last decade is financial inclusion. Yeah. There are a huge amount of people in Indonesia which remains either unbanked or underbanked. And a lot of the fintech developments here have been... Uh, have been really positive and and encouraging. Yeah, although there are excesses and the regulators are trying to cut back on those, the the positive uh, impact of technology on financial inclusion is is uh, is very notable in Indonesia.
0: That's great. It's so good to see tech changing the world and seeing the tangible benefits of that. So that's really that's really interesting to hear, Vic. What about you, Victor?
1: Robot diaristas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm a big coffee fan and uh, I used to have a coffee business as a gig with some friends. Um, so, to be honest, I've always been slightly skeptical. Um, now, I was at a tech conference last week and there was a showcase of a robot barista. Um, I was super pleasantly surprised the coffee served up was actually quite excellent and um, the entire service experience was just great. Um, I think it's an amazing solution um, for two of the biggest pain points in that industry, um, as you know, which is manpower and real estate. And I can see it being rolled out high-density urban areas everywhere.
0: Wow. Well, I look forward to trying my first robo-barista coffee. Um, look, thanks so much, Vic and Victor, for joining me today and for the very insightful discussion. Uh, to all our listeners out there, if you've got any questions or comments on this topic, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and be sure to tune in to our next episode uh, of... Um, our podcast series, where we'll be focusing on joint ventures, alliances, um, and other collaborations. Thank you again for joining us on Inside Tech. Done deal.
1: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.